0: Welcome to the Ellis Martin Report. During this broadcast, you will learn of potential investment opportunities involving publicly traded companies. These companies have paid us for exposure on this program. We ask that before you consider any possible investment choice, do your own research. You can begin the research process by visiting our website, ellismartinreport.com. Remember, if you do invest in any publicly traded concern, you do so at your own risk. Here's the host of the Ellis Martin Report, Ellis Martin. Welcome to the program. Today, you'll be hearing from several publicly traded companies that as part of their fiduciary duty to grow their shareholder base, have hired us to expose them to our audience for potential investment consideration. Before making an investment decision, I encourage you to do your own research on each company. All of our current sponsors are featured on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You can click through their banners or logos to their websites. We'll also speak to analysts on this program who will help to educate us and inform us as to what is happening in the financial world markets, etc. Let's begin the program. Dudley Baker is the editor of PreciousMetalsWarrants.com. Mr. Baker has 35 years of accumulated knowledge and experience in trading stocks, options, leaps, futures, options on futures, and warrants. In March 2005, he founded and launched a new investment market data service, Precious Metals Warrants, which provides detail on all mining and energy company warrants trading on the U.S. and Canadian exchanges. What's your advice to those fence-sitters in Precious metal stocks right now?
2: Well, i like to sum it up this way. Don't quit now. I think this whole game is literally right in front of us. The big move in the juniors and exploration companies that we've waited for for quite some time. Even though I own the service, I'm an investor as well. It's been a difficult year and we've watched the value of our portfolio drop. We've got a few good exceptions that companies that have even been bought out with mergers, etc. But on balance, it's been very difficult. Tax loss season could really create some incredible buying opportunities for some of these little stocks that have been beat up. For those listening that still have some cash, this could be some great opportunities. Still, on the flip side of that, we've got some that we see that are going up, and they may have already bottomed. All I know is we are in this little short-term window, I think, here in December, as being some of the last really good buying opportunities we're going to have in these juniors for quite some time, before we really start to explode.
0: So should we put on our bathing suits and just jump right in?
2: pretty much the only caveat I go with that is tax-loss selling season. This is a great unknown for any individual company, what's going to happen to that share price. We have a lot of stocks that we are following that are, and not intentionally so, but they just worked out this way, at $0.10 cents or less. Well, you think, holy smokes, how much cheaper can they go? But you know, they could easily lose a few more pennies, and so percentage-wise, that's pretty staggering, you know, 20 30 40% down. If somebody was following us, if they already had corporate positions, that's wonderful. Don't worry about it. But if you're looking to top off your positions to buy a little bit more, right now, we would almost encourage maybe put in, you know, the old stink bids just below the market, you know, maybe even 20% down. If a stock was selling at 10 cents right now, maybe stick an order in it at 8 cents, maybe 7 cents. If you get it, great. If you don't, You know, you've already got a position in that company. If you don't have a position yet, I'd say go ahead and take a position. I'm comfortable with all of our positions right now in my portfolio. I want them all to go up. Maybe not all will be the fabulous performers that I want, but that's my vision or else I wouldn't stay with those companies. I always like to think that everything we're in still has the opportunity for 500 to 1,000% potential, the 10-bagger, so to speak. This is why we're here. 10% doesn't excite us in a return on our money. We're out here to hit home runs. These home runs, I personally really believe are all right in front of us don't lose patience with these markets right now it's been a very trying year all of the analysts out there i truly believe think like i do that the big move is still in front of us for these resource stocks. If you get discouraged now, you're gonna be left out of the game. If you're not a subscriber, come on board. A lot of great opportunities here right now. So just come into preciousmetalswarrants.com, see what we've got to offer. We approach the market in many different ways, following the insiders with their warrants, with uh, a lot of different approaches. Don't let the name of the service, Precious Metals Warrants, discourage you because even for myself, I only have roughly 20% of my position in warrants. So we come at the market and my portfolio in many different ways to round this out and to have some good stock picks and many different kicks at the well, so to speak. So my top 25, top 30 positions, everything is in front of you to see, and we feel like we've got really good value for our subscribers.
0: I've been speaking with analyst and newsletter writer Dudley Baker. His website is preciousmetalswarrants.com. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website. L.SmartinReport.com. Lynn Brownley, the president of Gold Rush Resources, joins us now for a conversation about his company's operations in Burkina Faso, West Africa. Gold Rush trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GOD.V and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as GDRRF. Their flagship project is the Ron Gen Gold Deposit, where they have defined 249,000 ounces of 43101 compliant inferred gold. Extensive core and reverse circulation drilling was conducted in late 2010 that has significantly expanded the Gen deposit. The company's permits are all located in areas underlain by the West African Borimian greenstone belts, which have a prolific history of gold production in this area of the world. Len, welcome back to the program. Thank you
3: very much, Ellis, for having me.
0: Now, you were gone for a while in Burkino Faso. Tell us about the highlight of your trip, if you don't mind.
3: It was a quick trip, about a week, but we got a lot accomplished in that time frame. We visited eight of our 12 permits, drove about 1,600 kilometers around the country in order to do that. We witnessed three drill programs that were underway. The drills have now moved on to three other new sites so we've still got three programs underway. We hope to have them all wrapped up before the end of the year. So it was a good trip in terms of seeing where we're at with our drill programs, and we're pretty excited about what we think will be coming out of the assay lab. At least a couple of the cases, things look very good. At our Rongwin gold deposit, some of our more recent results are about 1.49 grams per ton over 38 meters and 2.16 gram per ton over about 25 meters. We seem to be coming up with similar material. So we're looking forward to a resource update and a vastly expanded resource come the end of Q1 this year. Secondly, we went to a permit called Wawasi. We've had that permit for some time. It wasn't that high on our priority list for a period of time until our chief geologist decided to take a little field trip there. In the time between when we'd acquired the permit and when he went for his visit, a large number of local artisanal miners had moved in. They've been extracting gold from two structures with two other satellite structures as well. The main structure has a strike length now of about 1,700 meters that they've excavated, so a very good-looking strike length. And the permit itself lies near the Markoy Fault, which is one of the major geological structures in Burkina. There are three mines that are associated with that fault, and Oguasi has the Marquois Fault running through it. The mines typically occur on splays off of the main sort of northeast trending fault, and sure enough, the strike length of the artisanal workings is a splay off that fault. That's very promising. As well, some of the rock sampling results we're getting back from that area are anywhere from two to nine grams, so very significant material. So that was at what's called the Vilwasi site. The other site that we looked at was Poissin, and there the artisanal miners are actually getting mechanized. They have a tractor, they have uh, diesel pumps, and they're quite a bit better organized than these guys usually are, which is indicative of them having found enough gold in the last year to purchase that equipment. A very interesting-looking site. We're getting rock samples at Poissin of up to 9 grams and a 700-meter strike length as well, so both very significant sites. While we were there, we made a determination to put about 2,800 meters of RC drilling into those sites, first drilling that's ever been conducted on that permit, and we're very, very enthused by what we think will come out of the drilling there.
0: Did you expect all of this before your trip?
3: No, (laughs) not really. The Wasi permit we've had for several years, but as I said, it was always a low-level priority because there were other permits with more sort of evident or you know obvious targets and really what happened was there's a growing season in Burkina the crops the millet and sorum and so forth grow up to three meters high and so if you do any field work during the growing season you can't see where the artisanal workings are because they're basically covered with crop as soon as they cut the crop then mining workers or gold workers come back in and start digging again right through the rainy season. And so when the crops were cut, suddenly the extent of their workings became evident, and they hadn't been evident before that point. And as well, this is the time of year where they start up artisanal mining, so you're suddenly seeing... Camps and villages spring up where there was no one six weeks ago. So it was very startling to see how much activity was going on, and they were a very enthusiastic crowd of miners at the Poisson site.
0: So the enthusiasm translates into passion for their exploration efforts as you proceed, correct?
3: They're not there for their health. They're there to find gold, and if they find gold, then they're a happy lot. So they're finding gold. That's a good marker. But in addition, we've got the structural setting that we're looking for. We're seeing large, wide veins that are obviously mineralized, the structural context in which those are occurring, the intrusives, the rock types, and the fact that you're on a splay of the Marquoy Fault are all very positive. So
0: the step out looks pretty promising, and you feel that you have quite a bit of room in that regard.
3: Well, having 1,700 meters worth of strike length is certainly, uh, at this point, very encouraging. As an example, Our comparative uh, Arrongan gold deposit right now has a defined strike length of about 1,700 meters. So anytime you're getting up to over a mile of strike length, you can see some sort of tonnage potential that is quite intriguing. And the other thing I should add is that these guys aren't working on just one vein. There seems to be a series of parallel structures as well, so we're seeing some width, particularly at the Poisson site, which is a little bit shorter, uh, defined right now as about 700 meters, but it's considerably wider because there seems to be a number of parallel structures that they're working on. So, all of this will be tested with a drill. I just started on uh, December 5th, and it will be finished hopefully by the end of the year here, and we'll have results thereafter. So those were very positive elements of the trip. And then the last thing I'd mention is down in the southwest corner of the country near the Ghanaian border, Ampella Resources came up with a new resource estimate on their conquera gold deposit. They're up to 3.1 million ounces, and they announced subsequent to that that they'd staked another 750 square kilometers of ground. Well, they now surround our medieval permit on all sides. And we've started a soil sampling program at Medibo. hope to have results by the end of the year as well, and we'll be formulating drill targets off of that. So another interesting target. This
0: is something we've talked about before, Len. You may be considerably undervalued based on everything I've heard.
3: I would tend to agree with that based on the level of activity we have, our permit locations, our geological team, just the vast array of drill results that we're anticipating having in the early new year. I would really hope that our current share price is a distant memory early into the new year because I I really think that we should be revalued at a much higher level.
0: Well, Len, once again, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I wish you a happy holiday season. I look forward to speaking with you again in the new year. Thanks for bringing this positive news to the program.
3: Well, thank you for having me, Ellis, and uh, yes, the best of the season to you and your listeners as well.
0: I've been speaking with Len Brownlee, the president of Gold Rush Resources, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol GOD. And in the U.S. on the OTCQX as GDRRF. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartreport.com. Ian Chalmers is the managing director of a company with significant assets of zirconium, rare earths, and rare metals, as well as gold and copper in New South Wales, Australia. Alkane Resources trades in the U.S. on the OTCQX as A-N-L-K-Y. That's A-N-L-K-Y. The Alkane story has been a compelling one, reflecting the success of their Dubbo Zirconia Project and the international market for zirconium and rare metal resources. Ian, welcome back to the program.
1: Oh, hi, it's nice to be with you again.
0: Now, you've been on the road a great deal lately. What have you been doing?
1: I've just spent nearly two weeks in Hong Kong. There were actually three conferences there. There was a Daiwa, the big Japanese investment bank, that had a conference where I was participating, followed by a mineral sands conference, zirconium, titanium, and obviously because of our involvement in the zirconium industry, very important for us. And then followed up with a rare earth conference, which was very good also. Large attendances at both those two conferences, uh, 450 at the mineral sands conference, 350 at the Rare Earth Conference. A lot of good information yeah, nowhere in near the pessimism about the rare earth prices that the media seems to have jumped on at the conference it was very good in the sense that there was a far more optimism about the industry where it was going to go. But certainly prices are down, but they're still way, way above what they were even eight, nine months ago. So prices are still very strong, and there was a great deal of optimism about where the industry was going to go.
0: Speaking of zirconium and heavy rare earths, while you were on the road, your company released news about an ore reserve upgrade at Delbo. Would you like to tell us about that?
1: Basically, uh, what we've done is publish an upgraded reserve statement for the Dubbo Zirconia project. This is a very important step because reserves are a, a step above resources. Resources just define the material in the ground, whereas reserves mean that there's an economic imprint feasibility done on it. And so that 36 million tonnes that we've identified as open pitable reserves gives us at least a startup or initial startup mine life of 36 years. So it's a very important step with the project going forward.
0: What is the potential revenue during that time period for the company?
1: Substantial. Basically, the revenues are around about $500 million a year. So if you take $500 million and multiply it by 36, you get something like $18 billion revenue over that 36-year period. So it's a substantial project and substantial revenue generating capacities.
0: You know, I sort of did the math before doing this interview, and quite honestly, I couldn't believe my eyes.
1: Of course, it's not the actual profit. I mean, the cash flow out of that's about, well, it's $300 million a year cash flow. Which then multiplied by 36, you get something like 10 billion dollars a year cash flow over that 36 years. So yeah, it still is a, a very, very substantial uh, return.
0: That makes you a major player in any industry in Australia, correct?
1: It does. Yes, it does. Yeah, and certainly a major mining operation, and importantly for us, a very significant player in the zirconium industry and the heavier earth industry, which is really where we've been targeting now for 15 years.
0: When you're talking about that kind of revenue. What will you be doing with the money?
1: It's a good question, actually. I mean, we genuinely believe we can pay dividends. I mean, that's the board's strategy. We've had it now for a number of years. We felt that when this project got up in production that would be the capability again once we've paid back all capital facilities etc we're in a position to pay dividends and major shareholders believe in that concept as well so we genuinely believe we'll be a significant dividend paying company.
0: Now you expect to be going into production with gold at the Tommingley project in 2013 let's talk about that.
1: There's a process for approvals an environmental impact statement there's a process that the state goes through and one of the final stages is that it goes on what they call public display or public exhibition so the 28 days that environmental statement or that environmental report is available to the public. People can look at it, they can comment, they can lodge objections so it's an important part of the process and once that 28 day period's up, if there are no substantial objections, the state then usually approves the project to go ahead. If there are significant issues then we have to come back and address them and make sure that we comply again and eventually that goes back to the state who then decide have we complied, have we met all the new conditions. So we remain very confident the project project has no other major environmental impacts. pretty confident we'll get the final go-ahead sometime in the new year. It may be February, March before we get that go-ahead, but at least this is a, another big step forward.
0: Well, you've got a great deal of work to do between double and dominantly with the jobs you're creating for these two projects and those teams. How are you handling the infrastructure of the company itself?
1: Again, important thing. I mean, historically, we've run two development teams, one for the Gold Project, one for the zaconia Project, and those two teams are intimately involved with taking it forward. Now obviously when you go from conceptual feasibility study through the construction, the whole thing changes. So Alcane over the next six months we'll go through a transition where we'll take on senior employees to take the Tomingley project through development and then into production and then obviously put on all the operating staff when we're ready to go. With Dubbo we're still a good 12 months away from getting to that point where we can start proceeding. We've got to get the financing in place, the approvals in place and that should be uh, the target for that by the end of next year. Then Dubbo will go through that next transition. Fortunately the area we operate is an area with a substantial existing workforce I mean it's a major agricultural region it also has a number of significant operating mines. So there is a good workforce that's already available, uh, and, and we don't really anticipate having difficulty getting the right people to, to run these
0: projects. Now, you mentioned financing. What kind of money do you need to get both these projects going? Are you going to the market for it, or do you have other ways of raising the cash?
1: With Tomingley, it's about $90 million Australian dollar capital cost. We have a $45 million dollar facility on offer to us from Credit Suisse, the large international bank. The other 45 we'll have to raise, and we're looking at the options of doing that and that probably will mean us going to the market at some stage to raise that 45 million now Dubbo said still 12 months out the total capital for that was about 890 million but on that 890 there's something like 180 million of that is made up of contingencies and EPCMs add-on type things so we think the actual real number will be closer to 750 or 800 for that project going forward and right now there are a number of options available to us and one of them is a small strategic sell-down of part of the project and we think we can do that with an escalator to NPV value. So the current model has an NPV of one point two billion dollars. We think we could sell ten percent for maybe two hundred or three hundred billion dollars. Then there's interestingly a quite a large amount of funding available from government agencies, and these are certainly Japan, Korea, European countries now are really putting up loan facilities to ensure that those countries get access to these strategic metals and applies to both the zirconium and the rare earths. To a lesser extent noovian, but it's still important. There's substantial fund available from those sources as well. And then finally, again, just normal commercial debt, and then equity. And we've tried to target ourselves to being fairly minimal impact as far as the equity market is concerned. And we're trying to minimize the uh, the impact on the equity side of the business and, and get all the other financing applications or components in first.
0: Rare metal prices are a bit depressed at the moment, but over the long run, that's certainly most likely not going to be the case.
1: We remain very positive about the business, the whole business, the zirconium business particularly. They'll Certainly, be a flat period now, maybe six months, while we get through this latest financial situation. But as we go forward into the second half of 2012 and into 2013, we're very confident that the uranium price will continue to escalate. The rare earths, it'll go through a transition over the next four or five years when the big producers like molycorp Linus, come on stream. Some of the bulk volume rare earths like lanthanum, cerium, they may well come down further in price. But the key ones, neodymium, and then the heavies, dysprosium, terbium, yttrium, I think. Those those prices will remain strong for a long time unless there's a going a major change in the supply chain over the next of ten, even to twenty years. So we remain very positive about this business and where we're going to be situated in it starting 2014.
0: Once again I've been speaking with Ian Chalmers, President and Managing Director of Alkane Resources, Alkane Trades of the US on the OTC QX under the symbol ANLKY. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, Ellis Martin Report. Dot com. In this segment, I'll be speaking with Neil Ringdahl, the president of Apogee Silver Limited, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and in the U.S. as AGEEF. Apogee Silver is a dynamic Toronto-based junior exploration and development company with a strategic focus on advanced-stage silver, zinc, and lead deposits in world-class mineral districts in South America. Apogee's primary focus is the Pulacayo Paca property, located in southwestern Bolivia. Apogee has been advancing the property since 2006 through a joint venture agreement with Golden Minerals Company, formerly Apex Silver. Apogee is also exploring the Cachinal Silver property located in northern Chile. Apogee has a recent share price of $0.18 and is a paid sponsor of the Yellow Smart Report. Neil, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Why don't you introduce Apogee to our audience?
4: Well, Apogee is a silver-based mining company listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol APE and we're a silver-focused mining company with our main assets in Bolivia and Chile. We have three projects with all with resources. The strategy is to develop our flagship project, which is Pulaukaya Resource in southern Bolivia, and bring it into production in the near to medium term. And then from there, we'll grow the company. We've got a very strong base of shareholders, including Corda Lean Mines, who own just under 9% of the company. Spot Asset Management, really Eric Spots, Mr. Silver in the industry as you know, and that company's got just over 18% of our company. And we're also supported by a number of other funds, including Pine Tree, Aberdeen, and the Chinese Mining United Fund, which is a group of three Chinese companies, that have also taken interest in us. And I think we've got a fairly favorable valuation compared to our other of peers, solar producers.
0: Now, you recently announced with regard to the Polakaya deposit, a 43-101 compliant resource of 29 million ounces indicated silver and 26 million ounces inferred. That's close to a potential $1.7 billion in resource quite prolific. How advanced is this project?
5: Well,
4: we've just completed a rather large drilling program for that resource update, about 23,000 meters of drilling, and we're continuing our aggressive drilling program. It's an old historical mine that produced over 600 million ounces of silver between, I think it's 1883 and 1958. It was nationalized in 1958, and unfortunately, not a lot of money was spent on developing the infrastructure, so it closed around about the same time, and it's been closed ever since. We were fortunate enough to get hold of the company in 2006 and have been doing a lot of exploration and I was brought onto the board as the CEO in June this year because of my mining background. I'm a mining engineer that specializes in building mines. I've got 17 odd years experience in Africa. I'm South African originally and South America including Peru and I took on this role because I had a look at the resource and I thought it was a really fantastic resource for taking forward into production. So our board is very supportive to me and basically got a strategy to take it into production on a large scale in 2015. But leading up to that, we'll be building a pilot plant of 400 tons per day during the course of next year. And we hope to have it commissioned by the end of next year. So we should see some early-stage production from that, which will also be supporting our feasibility study for the larger mine going forward. And it'll be generating early cash flow. So I think it's a very exciting story.
0: Well, you've got... 16 million dollars in the bank will you be able to generate cash flow from early production to continue on with further exploration efforts in that area
4: certainly once we get the plant running and the mine running we will be able to generate free cash flow from there to be able to continue our exploration but we've the numbers and as part of our feasibility study But I've got a vision of growing the mine to around about 8 million ounces produced per year hopefully around 2015 but that's subject to what Comes out in a feasibility study. And to grow a mine at size, we'll obviously need to finance that and take it from there.
0: With Sprout and Pine Tree and the others that you mentioned, that shouldn't be a problem. Should you need to go back and obtain more capital, down the road.
4: Absolutely and we're also looking at debt financing facility with the pension funds in Bolivia. Some people are concerned about Bolivia's investment destination and I think it would be really good if uh, we could reduce that sovereign risk by actually raising cash locally and we were initially a little bit not concerned about whether this is really that feasible but I've heard that Pan American Silver were able to raise 60 million dollars for their mine San Vicente in Bolivia. We feel we were able to raise a fair amount of money that way. Although it's not a done deal yet, it's something we're definitely looking at.
0: Are you building a strategic relationship with the local government?
4: Absolutely. We're actually partners with the government in this venture. The mines are all nationalized, so we have a lease agreement that gives us 100% control of the asset for a 2.5% royalty, which goes to Campanera Minera de Bolivia, which is a Bolivian state-owned mining company. And then we also pay a 1.5 percent royalty, there's a total of 4% royalty for the rights to the property. And we have two partners, one of them being the government and the other one being the community. And I think that really helps us a lot because it's good to have your community on side when you're going through permitting processes and so on.
0: Relationship with the community and the government is everything in that part of the world.
4: And, you know, we take that very seriously to make sure we maintain good relations, healthy relations with the local communities. Often mining companies overlook these things and end up having problems with the communities. We've taken the stance that we want to develop this mine for Bolivians in Bolivia. So it's a Bolivian mine, and people in the area must benefit.
0: With a share price of 18 cents, How do you compare to your peers in the area? Tell us about your share structure as well, Neil.
4: Our uh, market cap is around $50, $55 million at that price. We have just under 300 million shares outstanding. And we have, as of October, I think we had $16 million in cash, no debt. We do have some warrants outstanding. There are a few coming out uh, at $0.14 this month. And then uh, we have a few more coming through in May next year.
0: And what about valuation against your peers?
4: Uh, there's three ways you can value a company like ours when it's on a MPV multiple, if you've got a life of mine plan or something like that, which we have. The other way is to do a cash flow comparable as a cash flow multiple. And third way is to compare the resources in the ground, and I'll start with that one. Our enterprise value is around about $50 million. Silver ounces in the ground is total ounces inferred and indicated together, including our properties in Chile is $98 million uh, ounces. so that brings you up to 80 cents per silver ounce on the ground, which is certainly a lot less than our peers. If you look at Silver Fortuna, we like to compare ourselves against Silver Fortuna, who've got a resource of around 19 million ounces. Their share price is currently $8.71, and the enterprise value per silver ounce is around $8. We're sort of at 50 cents to 80 cents. The multiples significant. Obviously, they're in production. They're producing 1 to 2 million ounces of silver a year now. They've got two mines. we kind of smart ourselves on the same kind of business model that they had, which was, you know, start a smaller mine, get going, start to produce cash flow, and then grow that mine. So that's the same kind of model that we have. I think once we get into production, we'll certainly see a significant uptick in enterprise value as we come into production.
0: I've been speaking with Neil Ringdahl, president of Apogee Silver, trading on the TSX Venture Exchange, under the symbol A-P-E and of the U.S. as A-G-E-E-F. Listen to this segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. I'm Ellis Martin reporting from the San Francisco Hard Assets Conference, where we're having a wonderful time, and I've just met up with the greedy guru. How are you?
6: I'm doing great, Ellis. Good to meet you.
0: Now, tell me about your unique investment service, if you don't mind, Mr. Guru.
6: Well, in short, we are uh, basically taking the top picks of the pros, the main newsletter writers and analysts in the industry, and we are dissecting the information that they have picked as their top picks and stocks in the resource sector. We have dropped those numbers down from the thousands into the hundreds and then further analyzed it down into 20 picks that we think are the most fantastic buys based on the experience and the reputation of the pros in this industry at picking stocks. There's probably two or 3,000 mining companies
0: out there. Out of all those companies, how do we find the right story that's going to work for me? How am I going to make money? And what you're doing is you're siphoning everything down to 20 companies that you believe will do very well in the short term, the long term. What is your frame of reference as far as how quickly can I make money?
6: Well, not only that we believe we'll do well. It's based on more than one analyst, more than two analysts. Typically, three or more will be the deciding factor as to when we begin our own internal analysis of the stocks in question. With all of the new newsletter writers, we have one, two, three on board on the same stock recommendations. The problem with your average everyday investor is that this list is huge. When you're looking at 15, 20 different analysts and each one of them recommend different stocks, you have to find the common denominator of each one of these recommendations. When you have three or more analysts recommending a stock, the risk involved in following that stock is significantly diminished. From that point, we further analyze the company's As to which ones we believe will be in current market conditions, the buy recommendations and universally between those stock analysts saying that these stocks are fantastic buys. When you have more than one of those analysts on board, the likelihood that those are going to be successful ventures are greatly increased.
0: So it's like a two or three
6: thumbs up on a particular company. Exactly. And is it a subscription based service? Yes, it is. We do a, an annual subscription. Again, all the details are on the greedyguru.com. The goal of our service was to provide the only resource investment service any typical investor will ever need. You can go through and individually pick up each analyst and you can go through the recommendations, which quite honestly is going to take you hours, days, months, weeks to actually disseminate the information and pick out the individual stocks. And then you have to go. Further and analyze each and every single one of them. When you are able to shrink that list from the thousands of resource companies into the 325 typical recommendations and the average 20 analysts that we're following, then you can go further and say, okay, so now you've got two, three analysts on board. You shrink that number from 325. Again, that's a rounded number, but you shrink that number down to 20-ish. Again, not all of those 20 are current buys. Some of those stocks are, the market cap of them is so high, they're not going to see the profits that we would like to see for our individual investors. And again, they're not bad stocks. But 25-50% is not what we're looking for. We're looking for 100-plus on every turn for every investor. More bang for their buck, so to speak. This will be the only... Information that they need to make effective stock decisions and increase their bottom line.
0: I thank you, Greedy Guru, with the GreedyGuru.com, for joining us today on the Ellis Smart Report live at the San Francisco Hard Assets Conference.
6: Thank you, Ellis. It was great to meet you, and uh, you have a fantastic
0: day. Join me now for a conversation with Scott Drever, the president of Silvercrest Mines, which trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX as STVZF. Silvercrest Mines is a Mexican precious metals producer with headquarters based in Vancouver, British Columbia. Their flagship property is the 100% owned Santa Elena Mine, which is located northeast of Hermosillo in the prolific state of Sonora, Mexico. The mine is a high-grade epithermal gold and silver producer. The company anticipates that the 2,500 tons per day facility should produce an average of approximately 800,000 ounces of silver and 30,000 ounces of gold per full production year from the open pit heat bleach operation. Scott, welcome to the program.
7: Ellis, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure to chat with you.
0: For those that are either new to the program or not familiar with your company, please give us a brief background on Silvercrest Mines.
7: Very quickly, my colleagues started this company in 2003. We set some very specific goals to go forward on. We wanted to establish a substantial precious metal resource base. We wanted to get the cash flow from production as quickly as we could, and we wanted to look for elephant deposits while we were doing that and probably preserve ourselves reasonably well as a potential takeover target. I think on those four objectives, we've certainly got three of those in place, and it looks like the results coming from La Jolla will probably fill that fourth objective. For the last several years, probably from late 2005, we've been really, really focused on the production side of things. The Santa Elena project that we picked up in 5 we've taken from dead stop through expiration, pre-feasibility, feasibility, construction, and of course this year declared commercial production earlier in the year. So that's gotten us to a fairly comfortable stage where we've reached the production targets that we look for, which we're doing right now about 3,000 ounces of a gold per month and about 30,000 35,000 ounces of silver so that'll give us a good steady cash flow platform to go forward on i think our cash flow in the second quarter of this year is plus three million dollars and we're looking for that to increase over the quarters as we go forward
0: now santa elena which is just northeast of Hermosillo in prolific sonora state mexico is your flagship property but let's talk about the jewel if you will la jolla in durango mexico What have you discovered there recently?
7: La Jolla is a property project that we picked up September of last year, I think it was. Similar in circumstances to Santa Elena in that it's been around for a while. A number of people have looked at it, had difficulties dealing with the owners, but we've been able to overcome those things and we drilled our first phase of holes at La Jolla earlier this year and have just announced on Monday, I think, the results of at least one of the compilations that we've done. Our initial go-around at it looked at the high-grade silver, gold, copper values that we thought we could make a viable deposit out of. But looking at additional information that we acquired from one of the previous operators, we've been able to expand our horizon, if you will, and look at the possibility of a large bulk tonnage type of deposit. And the results that we've seen have been really, really encouraging. Some of the holes are running 250 meters, thereabouts, of 55 to 60 grams of silver equivalent, which for people that that don't think in grams is pretty close to an ounce and a half of silver. And over those kinds of widths, it provides us an opportunity to consider a very large bulk tonnage operation.
0: When do you think you're going to be able to define that resource?
7: That'll take a bit of time. We've done 26 holes, I think it is. We picked up another 51 holes in historical data. So that gives us a fairly decent look at about 1,000 thousand meters of strike length on the favorable horizon. There's another probably fifteen hundred meters that we haven't tested at all. So over the course of the next twelve months, we're going to take a hard look at all of that. We have a three million dollar drill program scheduled that we've already started on. We expect to have three rigs running there for most of next year. That will go a long way to telling us about the continuity and the consistency of the grades that we expect to come out of there. So probably by next year, we'll have a good grasp on that. Before the end of this year, we expect to produce a forty three one oh one technical report with resource estimates attached to it. So it'll all be in stages, but we work very quickly towards defining an economic deposit and working out the capital costs and operating costs so that we know how fast we can go forward with building another production
0: unit what sort of news do you think we may be able to expect over the coming 12 months or so?
7: We will have a very steady news flow, I think, coming out of Silvercrest. Probably the next item would be an update on the exploration activities that we are undertaking right now. We've drilled a number of holes, uh, cruised a mile, which we're preparing for feasibility study to part of the expansion plan for Santa Elena. So those results will be available. We'll give people a better idea of the exploration program that we're undertaking at La Jolla. We'll have our financial statements reporting before the end of the month. And one of the most significant elements, I think, is the release of a 43-101 with the initial resource estimates at La Jolla. Then through the first part of next year, of course, there will be updates on the activities or the results of all of those programs. We're also going forward with the expansion plan at Santa Elena which we expect will double the production there over the next three years. We'll be starting construction at some point in time on a 3,500 ton a day conventional mill. We're collaring an underground decline in January of next year to take us down to the bottom of the current deposit at Santa Elena and see what kind of reserves and resources we can develop there. So it's going to be a really, really active 12 months for us.
0: It's quite prolific around Durango and Hermosillo, mineral rich and polymetallic. You're very fortunate that, You found the properties that you have. Are you going to be looking for more?
7: Absolutely. As you say, it's a very prolific area. First Majestic La mine is just across the valley from us. The San Martin and Sabinas mines are probably 15 kilometers to the southeast of us. Those mines have been active in the same set of geology and types of mineralization that we have at La Jolla for probably plus or minus 300 years. So we're really in a great area. We've got some historical data that leads us in other directions, and those have identified probably three other targets around the results that we've just announced that we're really excited about. So we will take a look at that whole strip between La Jolla and San Martinus and Venus just because of the prolific nature of that mineral zone.
0: Now, we're still in somewhat of a tumultuous market, yet your company has seen a dramatic share price increase during the last month. How do you account for that? A couple
7: of reasons. I think people are realizing that our Santa Elena mine is going to do what we said it's going to do. The production and the cash flow is coming out as to what we said. So that's a stabilizing effect, and we, I don't think, have suffered the big hits that some of the groups have. We have expansion plans to double our production going forward. So people look at that as the upside. And I think the news that La Jolla is starting to shape up fairly dramatically is starting to filter out and people are taking a hard look at us. And you can see that in our daily volumes of trading have been moving up nicely. So I think all of those things contribute to the resilience and the increase that we're seeing in our share price.
0: I think when investors are taking a look at what's going on with La Jolla, they're looking at your track record with Santa Elena, and they expect the same potentially with La Jolla.
7: Yeah, it's always easy to go forward if you're going forward on a successful basis. I think you're absolutely right that we have certainly tried to do what we say we're going to do. That track record and the backgrounds of our management group are starting to shine through.
0: I've been speaking with Scott Drever, president of Silvercrest Mines. Silvercrest trades on the TSX Venture Exchange under the symbol SVL and in the U.S. on the OTCQX under the symbol STVZF. Find a link to their website on the homepage of our website, Ellis Martin Report. Join me now for a conversation with Lorne Waldman, the Corporate Secretary for Silvercore Metals Incorporated, trading on the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol S B M. Silvercore Metals is engaged in the acquisition, exploration, development, and mining of high-grade silver-related mineral properties in China and Canada. Silvercore is the largest primary silver producer in China through the operation of four silver-lead zinc mines in the Ying Mining Camp in Henan Province. Lauren, welcome back to the program. I understand you had a significant revenue increase of up to 71%, and additionally, you're offering another 25% increase to your shareholders.
5: First of all, you know we're really uh, excited to be able to announce a dividend increase. We've increased the dividend by 25%. This is the third time... In the course of the last five years, that we've increased our dividends, and you know, we think it's really important to uh, reward our shareholders and the loyalty they've shown to us with the payment of dividends. But underlying all dividends, there has to be real earnings, and that's the important thing. And you know, we've had our quarterly analyst conference call where we uh, reviewed our uh, earnings for the last quarter. The earnings were very strong, our net income was up 49%, and our cash flow from operations was up 140%. So, you know, those are the type of numbers that can allow you to support a growing dividend.
0: Now, you predicted your revenue would grow, but how do you account for it?
5: In this quarter, the revenue growth was partially due to increases in our production. Silver production was up. Gold production was up and, you know, mashed them together on a Silver equivalent basis production was up 12%. Also, we are benefiting from stronger silver prices. Silver prices were up over 108% compared to this time last year.
0: What's next for Silvercorp in the coming year?
5: Well, we have a lot of exciting growth opportunities coming up ahead. You know, one of the big projects we're working on, of course, is our new GC development property. We just commenced construction. On that, the mine and mill should be completed around the end of June in uh, 2012, and we'll be able to start ramping up production there. You know, in addition to that, you know, we recently ac- acquired the uh, XBG project, which is right near to our Ying mine, so we'll be able to be starting to get some production from there, and we have the new BYP project going. So you know, we have an- a number of items in the pipeline which should allow us to continue to grow our production, as well as our resources. On the resource side, you know, in China alone, we have 241,000-meter drilling program that's currently ongoing this year, and so we're uh, looking forward to seeing some positive results from that drilling program.
0: What's happening in North America, in Canada specifically?
5: Well, in North America, we have our Silver Tip project. That's a silver-lead-zinc project in northern British Columbia. Right now, our focus there is on applying for a small mine permit, which would allow us to establish a 75,000 ton per year operation. But even before we get that going, we hope to be getting a bulk sample permit, which would allow us to mine at 60,000 tons per year. And that could start as early as, you know, within the next mining season, so as, as early as next June. The nice thing at the Silvertip project is a high-grade project. If you look at the resource, you know, you're looking at grades of around 400 grams per ton silver and around 18% lead zinc. But there's even higher-grade pockets closer to 700 grams per ton silver and 27% lead zinc. With those type of grades, you can ship it directly from the property to our mills in China, and it would still be very profitable.
0: Speaking of profit, what do you intend on doing with your large treasury?
5: You know, we have $176 million in cash and no long-term debt at the end of September. So we're basically using that to finance our existing capital expenditure plans, and so that includes things like building new tunnels, at our existing Ying Mining Camp also funding the development of the GC project expanding BYP in total we have around 70 million of capital expenditures budgeted for the current fiscal year in addition to that a big part of Silvercorp's growth strategy is to grow through acquisitions and so we're always looking for good high grade underground precious metal projects that we can bring into production quickly and with relatively limited capital.
0: You've been trading on the New York Stock Exchange for a while and your share price has been recovering nicely lately. Do you believe there's still room for upside in this tumultuous
5: market? Well, you know, I don't like to comment on the share price. You know, I encourage investors to take a look at Silvercorp, but when you're comparing Silvercorp to our peers, what you need to remember is that Silvercorp is the low-cost producer. And in any commodity business, at the end of the day, you want to be the low-cost producer. And that's one of the key advantages you have when you're investing in a company like Silvercorp. In addition, you know, you're getting a company that has a very entrepreneurial management team and a terrific track record of success and building value for its shareholders.
0: Lauren, once again, I thank you for spending time with me today on the program. I appreciate your being here. Thanks a lot, Alice. Lorne Waldman is the corporate secretary of Silvercorp Metals, trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange and the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol S B M. Listen to the segment again on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. Join me now for a candid interview with America's preeminent expert on precious metals, commodities, and foreign currencies, Jim Sinclair. Mr. Sinclair is the president of sponsor Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading on the Amex division of the New York Stock Exchange under the symbol TRX. Tanzanian Royalty focuses primarily on gold assets strategically located in the Lake Victoria Greenstone Belt of Tanzania, one of the most prolific gold-producing regions in the world. The company acquired a 55 percent interest in the advanced stage buck reef gold mine development project which could see commercial production in 2014. Previously to helming Tanzanian royalty, Mr. Sinclair was the founder of the Sinclair Group of Companies, which offered brokerage services in stocks, bonds, etc., operating in New York, Chicago, Kansas City, Toronto, London, and Geneva. He was an advisor to Hunt Oil and the Hunt family from 1981 through 1984 for the liquidation of their silver position as a prerequisite for the $1 billion loan arranged by former Fed Chairman Paul Volcker. Hi, Jim. How are you?
8: I'm doing very well. I think today is an important day to be able to speak to our friends in interested in gold. Absolutely. I think that the reason why gold is under pressure uh, need to be examined. I think the role of the hedge funds need to be examined. I think the role of Germany and Mrs. Merkel, especially in her presentation to her equivalent of the legislative, is very important.
0: Feel free to explain further, Jim.
8: The action in the gold market has certainly made people uncomfortable. The degree of a decline, the break that came off the approximately 1764 level, the three days of market action. It's important that the listeners understand what has brought this about. And I think it was summated in the fundamental sense when commentators on Mrs. Merkel's presentation and her comments were that Germany is more concerned with a 1923 event than they are with a 1932 event. If you were to accept that there is political strength to invite a significant depression of business activity, to invite insolvency in banks and financial institutions to invite more occurrences similar to the recent failure of a major clearing agent then you'd have to recognize that that was a fundamental reason for the liquidation of positions in gold but truth to the matter euro financial leaders speak more often motivated by political expediency than a deep and careful understanding of the risks that exist today
0: how big are these risks
8: the risks that exist today on both sides of the equation are extreme. But to accept the deflationary case, to continue to fail to face the real difficulties that exist in the euro and, after that, the U.S. dollar, is politically unacceptable. The entire thesis of gold has been built over time based on the lack of a political will to do the necessary. When the conditions that exist are negative to whatever political leader, whatever country, is experiencing what is being experienced now by all members of the euro and all states of the United States. To assume that the course of action taken would be a course which would invite significant deflationary forces is to ignore a hundred years now, almost, of political activity. So when Mrs. Merkel made the statements that were interpreted by the media as being more concerned about hyperinflation than deflation, it set off some fundamental selling. The markets in gold today are not made up of any kind of retail trade. It isn't made up of those who have bought gold for insurance purposes, because they're not active every day in the market. Markets today are made up by hedge fund operators, and these operators make their decisions based on technical analysis, which means that everyone is looking at exactly the same thing, and therefore trading exactly on the same side. The drop that's taken place in gold is, in one sense, only indicative of the volatility that we're facing, not a change in the fundamental reality of what gold is. You've had more hedge funds chasing each other in liquidation, which also means that on the other side, they'll be equally chasing each other in accumulation. The problems that we have right now have no practical solution. And the least practical of all in the political sense is to invite significant deflationary occurrences. So the present fall in the price of gold is a reaction brought about by a trading crowd, interpretation of a political statement that time will prove to be absolutely fallacious.
0: What are you saying to those retail investors, the UNIs in the world, that have bought Golders Insurance?
8: number one, not a whole lot different than any of these declines. Clearly, here's a lesson that margin is your enemy, that the use of borrowed money is inviting problems in markets which are so volatile only to get more volatile. The net result of what's going on right now is not going to be no QE. It's going to be QE to infinity. The net result of what's going on right now is not going to be stalwart attachment to deflationary policies, because no politician and no political system would survive the impact of that. But rather a sharp shift to the other side. The consortium of banks that took swaps only a week ago from the Federal Reserve were not taking and following deflationary leads, creating a deflationary event. In fact, it was quite to the opposite, and that is only one week ago. Nothing has changed between last week and this week except a political statement by a politician dealing with economics that I don't believe few of our so-called financial leaders thoroughly understand.
0: Was it a political statement that was used as a trigger, basically?
8: Basically, it's been a Combination of that and watching Fed action as QE is concerned. The gold market wants QE. The stock market wants quantitative easing. The statement by the Fed in their language, plus Mrs. Merkel's statement, would be considered to be statements by people dedicated to accepting deflationary events without significant response, either fiscally or monetarily, from this point forward. That's totally ludicrous.
0: Dollar strength is not necessarily good for precious metals in an election year, is it?
8: Dollar strength is. Is it good or bad for gold, depending on what it comes from? If dollar strength is a pure mirror image of the weakness of the euro, it probably speaks more towards the benefit of gold than it does to the detriment. If dollar strength was a product of an improving economy, proper handling of affairs, and solid balance sheets, I tend to agree with you. Dollar strength will last only until the euro either dissolves or some action is taken which solidifies it. The minute that the euro comes out of the picture, or I wouldn't say the minute Within three weeks of that event, dollar weakness will be quite, quite evident.
0: And we're not putting a time frame on when the euro becomes irrelevant in this picture.
8: The dollar strength now is nothing else but euro weakness. It's caused by no other constituent whatsoever. This problem in Europe is becoming almost comical. Dollar strength in an election year means nothing to the guy who doesn't have a job and would have no significant impact on making a better election possibility for the present administration if dollar strength is based on deflationary business collapse.
0: So American politics are irrelevant now.
8: For a short period of time, the answer to that is yes. Because Because all eyes are on Europe, not correctly so. That is where it stands now.
0: Has gold left the rally mentality?
8: The rally mentality from the market only days ago being at 17 62 to today at 1585. Yes, but the rally mentality is a product of your hedge fund operations. Certainly not some major change in the general philosophies.
0: Well, it's the advice time of this segment, right? Now, what do you say to those folks that are joining us today that are sitting on some cash and not necessarily doing anything with it? They may want to. What's your recommendation today?
8: The minute that the technical characteristics of the gold market decelerate the downside. The same indicators will become buyers rather than sellers. And I published various price levels called the angels. Each one of those has the highest probability of creating a turn. And personally, I feel that the worst of this reaction is behind us.
0: Tell us about your website, Jim.
8: Well, I have a teaching website. It's free. It's jsmindset.com. It's been around since 2003 and tends to take each of these issues apart, to take a look at them fundamentally as well as technically, to try and throw some light onto the wildness of our markets.
0: I've been speaking with Jim Sinclair, the president of Tanzanian Royalty Exploration Corporation, trading under the symbol TRX on the Amex. Just type in TRX. Listen to this segment again and find a link to Tanzanian Royalties' website on the homepage of our website, ellismartinreport.com. You've just heard opinion, commentary, and dissertation involving publicly traded companies seeking your potential investment. they paid us for the privilege. Invest at your own risk and only after doing extensive research. Find our sponsors and listen to segments of this program again on our website, ellismartinreport.com.